Connecting your team to the largest community of technology-minded leaders from tribes across the country. Welcome to the Tribal Hub Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Tribal Hub Podcast. I'm Michelle Bouchard, your host for today's show. Today, we're talking to Renita Stefano. Renita is the founder, president, and CEO of Second Derivative LLC. Second Derivative is a Native American and women-owned business that provides a broad spectrum of technology services featuring alignment of business and technology strategy, information security strategy, PMO, and portfolio management capabilities. Renita has performed as both a CIO and a CISO, building an information security and insurance program from the ground up. She is one of the first Native American women to become a a CISO and a CIO and is regarded as a pioneer in her field. Renita, welcome to the Travel Hub podcast. Hey, Michelle. Thank you for that warm introduction. I am excited to be here and I really appreciate the invite. My hope is that we can use some of that experience building an information security and assurance program from the ground up to highlight a couple of accelerators that might help our listeners with building or even updating their incident response plan. If we can help even one tribe with accelerating their plan, then this will be time well spent. That's amazing. And um, Renita, just for our listeners, Renita and I uh, were both at the TribalNet conference a couple weeks ago in Reno. And I know while we were there, Renita has just has been a Tribal Hub um, supporter, been on our board and just a real great friend to Tribal Hub. So we were chatting quite a bit during the conference. And, you know, one of the things that we saw, the conversations we saw taking place during the conference, a lot of them had to deal with tribes who were experiencing cyber incidents. That's kind of where this conversation and this podcast came from. We thought, you know what, we should maybe do something to, you know, expand on that and give some of our listeners a little more information about the things they should do and shouldn't do when they experience a cyber incident. You know, I'm sure you felt the same way, Renita, while you were there. Some of our most well-attended sessions were um, the cybersecurity session. So it's definitely a big topic. I agree. And, you know, cybersecurity and incident response is something that is very near and dear to me as a cybersecurity specialist or practitioner. While it seems fairly straightforward, some organizations really struggle with with the first step, which is to invoke your incident response plan. And regardless of whether it's a true security incident or something's happening that still needs investigation, there are important elements in the plan that can help you as you respond. Because number one, it's repeatable, meaning with practice and experience, it becomes almost second nature. You don't even have to refer to the plan until later when it gets really serious. So one of the most important elements of an incident response plan is that it will name an incident response commander or the lead. This is really important because there should be one person that is the go-to for all response and recovery efforts. And it becomes a shared, socialized, common understanding of just who that person is. In other words, it removes any ambiguity as to who that is. And it should also identify a primary, a secondary, and a tertiary or a third person, just in case the primary or secondary are not available. 
that is common because these sorts of things will typically happen on a holiday, on a weekend, overnight. And so, you know, you shouldn't be waiting around for a callback from your primary or your lead commander in the event of a security event because time is precious. So you can't waste any time there. The plan also establishes a core incident response team and their associated roles and responsibilities. For example, you can have a network manager who is responsible for everything network related as it relates to recovery. You can have an applications manager who is responsible for recovering the applications. But the commander or the lead is the one person who is responsible for overseeing all of those functions as they occur simultaneously. As the situation progresses, those members of the core team can and will add others to the event, depending on the situational analysis. Let's talk about that for a minute. And this is important. The plan will also highlight other groups within the organization that may participate in incident handling. Most people think incident response is purely an IT thing, and it simply is not. You know, that is was one of my next questions, because, you know, a lot of the the things that we talk about here with uh, within Tribal Hub are to really get, you know, tribes to understand that it's not just your technology team who need to help with or have to be a part of responding to a cyber incident like this. You know, it's that's a very important note. It's never just an IT thing. So can you take us through the phases of the incident response plan? And also in your experience, what other departments have typically been involved, you know, in those other groups supporting the technology team? Sure, Michelle. One of the most well-known standards is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or the NIST. You hear that acronym thrown out a lot. And the NIST follows a four-phase approach, which is prepare, detect and analyze, contain, eradicate, and recover, and then post-incident. And at first glance, it looks pretty linear. In fact, there's a, a, a diagram that shows it looking pretty linear, but some folks kind of fail to recognize that there are kind of circle backs and return, go back to the beginning and, and that sort of thing. Because in actuality, there are really three swim lanes that are happening all in parallel. So let's camp out there for a bit. In the prepare phase, this is the work that you've already done to avoid a security incident. This is your intrusion prevention, this is your antivirus uh, software, integrity monitoring, if you have that in place. And this is also where you develop your incident response plan and you practice your incident response plan. Once you're in the throes of, you know, something's happening, we're not quite sure, you immediately skip to step two or phase two, which is the detect and analyze phase. And this is where, you know, the detection means this is where some of your security tool sets could be one, could be multiple, are telling you that something is wrong. It could be your antivirus, your email filter, a firewall. And it could be also one of those legacy systems that we talk about, which is the humans that tell you they clicked on something or they're seeing something weird and they report it. And this is how you know that your security awareness training is working. In this phase, the leader will be facilitating something called a situational analysis. That's a fancy word for assembling the core team and figuring it out at a bare minimum, what is it? 
Where did it come from? How did we become aware of this? What's it doing? How's it behaving? And this phase can happen in a matter of minutes and seconds. A seasoned incident response commander, in other words, one that has practiced performing situational analysis can determine pretty quickly that you have a security event going on. It's kind of like the tools are telling you if it looks like a duck and it acts like a duck, it's probably a duck. Let, let, let's get this thing going. And so once you know that you have, once you know the five W's, the who, who, what, where, when, and why, that's when you begin to contain. And this is where you decide, usually pretty quickly, the best method uh, to contain should be whatever that is. And instinctively, it usually starts with quarantining the affected system, figuring out what the kill switch is that will stop it in its tracks. If you're lucky enough to catch the badness in the early stages during reconnaissance, you've heard that word before, containing can be as simple as disabling a privileged account, one that's been compromised. And I could spend a whole podcast on managing privileged accounts, but I'm not, sure have, I'm not sure we have time for that in this podcast, but certainly spend some time there, um, spend some time in, in that space. But an early sign is when something like a service account is attempting to access things or go where it doesn't belong. Places like the finance or the HR share or accessing an application it shouldn't be. Or it'll start trying to communicate outside of your internal network, trying to establish a command and control site on the outside. And if your monitoring tools are working, you'll know this sooner rather than later. But if you're not that lucky, all or most of your systems could be affected, like in the case of ransomware. Yeah, and remember that this phase will also focus on preservation of evidence. In other words, keeping the logs, sequestering the affected system for analysis later. And then finally, during the eradication phase, this is where you attempt to remove every part of the badness from your environment. And this can take some time, again, based on the situational analysis, that which could look different for every situation. And in a worst case scenario, like with ransomware, you could be looking at a complete restoration of all of your systems. And then finally, as you recover, you might have to go back to a known good backup or a snapshot of a server. And this is where having offline or immutable backups is so important so that you can restore to a known clean state. And again, I could spend an entire podcast on just that, but we'll try to focus right now on the phases, the last of which is post-incident. And this is where lessons learned occurs. This is one of the most important, maybe overlooked sometimes, phases. Here's where you figure out what worked well in your plan, what didn't work, and the key here is to update your plan based on those lessons learned. Yeah, I would bet that would be one of the most important steps right there to go back and say like, okay, this worked, this didn't work. What do we need to change for next time? You're right, Michelle. Following steps within a plan that don't make sense at the time isn't helpful. I once had an auditor ask me if we were filling out a form or some document during an incident 
during the situational analysis phase? And my answer was no, we're not filling out a form. We're in a war room, heads down, solving the problem, saving the day. We'll go back and document later, but not during that phase of the event. And the feedback was that a document was referenced in our plan, but we didn't follow the plan. And then we quickly removed that from the plan because it, it didn't make sense in that phase. Yeah, in that phase. And to be clear, these phases are not linear, meaning they're happening simultaneously in parallel. It's kind of a, a lather, rinse, repeat kind of thing, especially during recovery. Because if you think about it, you're you're going to have established tier tier zero, tier one, tier two, tier three systems to restore, you're not doing them all at once. That's like boiling the ocean, right? You get your most critical, get your most critical systems back online and then the second most and the third most. So that's the leather rinse repeat thing I just referenced. And there's overlap, right? There's overlap. Sometimes you go to restore something, it didn't work. You have to camp out there for a little while and keep doing it until it's done. So even within that, you know, within that uh, cycle, and that's okay. That doesn't mean that you don't have a good plan. You have to be agile and responsive to the events that are unfolding because you certainly can't predict all of the things that the badness can be causing, you know, during the time that you're writing a, a plan. So for example, if, if part of the contain step, you start to, take a system offline, take it off the network, disable the NIC so it can't talk to anything, shut it down, right? Get it, get it out of here. Somebody can be over here doing that step, preserving the evidence, taking care of that thing. Well, somebody else is spinning up a new one once you're comfortable that, you know, the badness has been contained. And that's all happening within, you know, that disaster recovery part of the plan, which is, you know, mostly focused on the technical disaster recovery. Yeah. And that's that kind of is leading into my next question as, you know, this is going to be your what you described as like your tech, your IT team, your your tech team that is like kind of in that swimming lane, like you mentioned. But there's other folks that are doing their pieces alongside of you guys, you know, the tech team doing their recovery pieces. Is that is that correct? Yeah, so the other two swim lanes I'm talking about are the business continuity and the communications piece. So with you know within business continuity, the, the that role is to keep the operations of the business continuing. I mean, I sort of repeated myself there, but that's literally what it is, right? Oftentimes, it means invoking manual procedures. You know, means um, you know talking about payroll. How are we going to get payroll? Because payroll is a weekly cycle, right? And if something something bad happens on a Monday, uh, you know, and that's your payday, that can affect you know your payroll. And you know, paying people is probably one of the most important parts of, of the business, right? You can't you can't let the, you can't wait around, you can't wait around on that one. So you know, there's a lot of business continuity that's going on uh, during this, but. You know, also communication. This is where, you know, you've assembled your critical incident response team or the CERT team. This includes your executives, sometimes the board of directors, sometimes tribal leadership. It may, if it's bad enough, involve the FBI, the critical infrastructure and security agency or uh, CISA. It may involve your cyber liability insurance partner. There may be public communications that need to go out. You certainly have 
uh, you know, to figure out what your breach notification communications need to look like. Oftentimes there are speeds and feeds to your benefit providers. So health insurance, dental, medical, you know, those, those kinds of providers outside of the organization. And one, you know, one thing that's kind of over overlooked or missed is, you know, communication with your cloud providers. And I've heard, you know, we don't have any cloud providers. And if you have benefit providers, insurance, medical, dental, you do have cloud providers. If somebody else is running your payroll, you do have a cloud provider. And so that should be listed in your plan and that should be addressed. But also, you know, one of the most important pieces is your communications lead, just like your commander in the disaster recovery piece is named. That position or title should be named in your communication plan. Who's talking to the press? Who's making those first phone calls? And while, you know, this list is not exhaustive, here's just a few that I could think of off the top of my head. You know, who's calling your incident response firm? If you don't have a firm on retainer, you should get one. But, you know, who's making that phone call? You should also be calling your vendors, you know, Cisco, Palo Alto, Endpoint Protection, Microsoft. And I'll add here, here's a great way to pick your vendors or your partners is by knowing who's going to answer your call in the time of crisis and making sure that your phone numbers for your major vendors are also documented in your communication plan. And the plan should name the title, not the person. It shouldn't say Renita. It shouldn't say Michelle. It should be the name of the title because if there's a turnover, the name can change, but the title probably won't, right? It, it'll, it'll name the title, not the person that's going to be making the call to the FBI. Remember, this is a federal agency to sovereign nation relationship. That call should not be made by the IT person, or, or is it? Maybe that's the right person for your organization, but often it's not. And the same thing with, you know, CIA is say who's making that phone call to cyber liability and tribal leadership. There's a lot of communication between the CEO, the board of directors, certainly a regulator. But that needs to all be called out in the plan before something happens. So you're not figuring out who's calling who and when. When do you make that call to the board? And certainly if you're a member of MSI SAC, and if you're not, you should become a member. I'll say that right out. Shameless plug here for MSI SAC is that, you know, if you're not a member, you should become one because they can be an important resource as you as you go through through things. That is actually the point of MSI SAC. It is a community of like-minded individuals and tribes and community members that um, are just there to you know help each other in the, in the time of crisis. Um, also, another thing, I, you know, I was sitting here thinking it's important also to remember that this should be a, a printed document. Yes, absolutely. Your incident response plan should be in paper format, printed offline and at a home space in a secure space within your home. You know, you don't want it laying around on the kitchen table, uh, but at the same time, you should be able to find it. If you're like me um, and you put things that, you know, so they're safe, you should pra practice go and retrieving that document so that you know, you know where it is. Because, you know, one of the most common things that I hear is that, you know, I didn't have my contacts because my exchange server had been hit. And so, you know, I didn't have my contacts on my mobile phone. So you should be able to get to those, you know, fairly quickly. I love how, you, you know, in this, in this plan, in, the, in this example, and what you're talking to people about is in, encouraging in the involvement of so many different people. And I think that is just so important and so key 
that it's, you know, again, I know I've said this before, but it's not just your technology team. It's really everybody from your CEO to your tribal board. You know, there's a lot of people involved here. How, how many people though are too many? Is there a limit where you're like, gosh, 10, 15 people is the maximum? Because there seems like there will be a lot of things happening all at one time. Is there a point where there's like too many cooks in the kitchen? Or are you thinking, you know, as many as possible to kind of help, right, you know, regulate this situation? What have you found? Well, you should cover all the bases, right? So we talked about the technical commander and commander in chief, if you will, the one who's, you know, overseeing the disaster recovery efforts. And then we talked about the communication. So your public relations person or whoever is playing the role of public relations, if you don't have one internally, you might also have one externally, right? But certainly legal counsel, you'll want them to be involved because there are, you know, regulatory and often risk management reports up through legal, and they would be the ones talking to the insurance folks, right? They're the ones figuring out the breach notifications. And, you know, one that I failed to to mention or call out specifically is human resources. They're the ones in charge of making sure that people get paid, although payroll is doing the transaction, right? HR has to figure out if there is an an extended event, the average time to recover from ransomware is 13 days. Um, How much are you paying them? Are you paying them for what, what they made last week? And how long do you sustain that, you know, before you say, your message is going to change in some way. So legal, public relations, certainly your executive team, they need to be you know, involved in that decision making or executing to their piece of the plan. But you're right, there can be too many cooks in the kitchen. But you do avoid that if you specifically call out roles and responsibilities in the plan, who's talking to who and when. And so if you don't have a plan, what should you do? So the easy kind of of answer sounds, it sounds oversimplistic, but if you don't have a plan, you should get one. And don't wait until there's an event to put a plan together. But, you know, just talking to the folks at TribalNet, there are some common reasons or themes, if you will, as to why organizations don't have an incident response plan. And here's, you know, kind of some of the things that I've that I've heard. One is time. Many tribes have limited resources. And Michelle, there's really a talent deficit in Indian country when it comes to technical talent. And certainly as it relates to information security and assurance, uh, most folks in their, their IT departments are focused on keeping the lights on, you know, getting reliable compute resources, resetting passwords, kind of hands on the keyboard, boots on the ground. And the set, so the second thing is expertise. They've never done one before. This is a highly, this is a highly specialized skill that we're talking about here. I am a CISSP, which stands for Certified in Information Systems Security Professional. That's a, you know, a lot of alphabet soup there. And one of the domains that is covered is disaster recovery business continuity, right? It is a highly specialized skill that we're talking about. And that kind of talent can be hard to find, certainly within uh, remote you know, areas of of the country. And then, you know, money is a big thing. Budgets are tight. And if forced to pick between updating a firewall that will go end of life soon, won't be supported, right? Or hiring a consultant to do disaster recovery, IT is almost always going to update the hardware. 
you know, refer to number one and two above time and expertise. They've never done it and they don't have enough time. And now you're forcing me to pick the ways in which I spend my money. I'm going to get the hard work. Right. And that's where the second one comes in, comes into play. That's executive level support. It's, uh, you know, it's still out there that folks think that, you know, this is an IT thing. And to be clear, especially ransomware, you need the support of your top executives, your board level, certainly your regulator, if you're in gaming and hospitality, to make sure that this thing happens. So important to get so many other people from your executive team involved in something like this. You know, if, if there is an incident that, you know, for example, shuts down their casino or ties up your electronic health system, it's going to be a lot more than the technology department that is affected. That's for sure. Certainly. It has organizational and most importantly, community impact. That's why it's an executive level concern. So what do you recommend for tribes that are in maybe the beginning phases of creating their incident response plan or haven't even started one yet? Michelle, my best advice is to get help. Remove any barriers to success. There are some do-it-yourself options that are available to tribes. One is to join MSISAC, who can connect you with some resource options that are low cost, no cost, that are available specifically for tribes. Another do-it-yourself thing that you can do is to download from CISA or the NIST. There are other some other templates that are out there. Be careful what you download. But, you know, just get one of those and fill in the blanks. If you've never done one, I'm going to go back to time, expertise, and money. That task can be daunting. It can be backburnered. Right. Because everyone's focused on keeping the lights on, fire drill, that that kind of stuff. So that that can be tough. Uh, That can be tough, which is where, you know, engaging your leadership comes into play. Here's I'm going to ask you ask a question. And this is uh, this is a rhetorical question. But for the folks listening to this podcast, ask yourself this. Would you say that cybersecurity is a top priority within your organization? Then I would ask if incident response planning is on the agenda of your executive committee and your board of directors meetings. If it's not, then I would say it's not that important to your organization. The words don't match the action. So there, there, there needs to be some reconciliation of those two things. If you say it's important, but you're not talking about it, those things don't match. So get folks talking about it. And even if it's you know coming from IT to the engaging the leadership, you know that's often the way that that messaging occurs. Repeat that question. If you say it's important, why aren't we talking about it, right? So uh, ask ask the you know the leadership those those kinds of questions. And then, you know, get a trusted expert. You know, this could be a tough sell um, because it usually means, you know, getting some money. But I would, again, ask how important is it to your tribe? You know, how important is it to you? So if you're spending money on one thing, but you're not spending it on incident response, ask yourself, is it really that important to us? And then lastly, I would say get some resources. I mean, I don't know if you saw this, Michelle, but... The Critical Infrastructure and Security Agency, or CISA, just yesterday announced the availability of 
money through that'll be administered through uh, FEMA. And that is that is dedicated to cybersecurity. There are resources dedicated to, you know, broadband resources dedicated to critical infrastructure. Go after that money. Get your grant writing folks, you know, involved. Talk to your leadership and, you know, find their resources. It is out there. And if you don't. Yeah, if you're not sure how to do that, again, circle back to get a trusted expert, somebody who can help you navigate that. But if you don't know how to do a plan, get help. If you're a member of Tribal Net or Tribal ISAC, participate in the webinars. And if you're not a member, become one. Bottom line, and the, the, the message here is don't think that an incident response plan is an IT thing. I love that there are so many resources out right now, and I will definitely link to all of those in um, in the show notes to the podcast, because you're right, there are a ton of resources available. If tribes can get their hands on some of uh, some of that money, that might even be, uh, you know, an easier conversation to have with, you know, your leadership to get that trusted expert if they know they could get grant from a federal agency. So there's some great things out there for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, those additional resources between getting a trusted security expert and getting some money to fund that effort mm-hmm. is really, you know, two accelerators. You want it done well, you want it done quickly, and most importantly, you want it done. You want to yeah. get it done. Absolutely. Right now, in this day and age, it has to be done. <laughs> um, any other last minute uh, words of advice for any of our listeners out there who might be thinking of putting together an incident response plan for their tribe? Um, you know, I think we covered a lot of the ground here. And, uh, you know, again, if you look at an incident response plan as, you know, a lot of, especially in the financial world, right, they look at it as, a return on investment. Am I going to make any more money or incremental revenue by having an incident response plan? The answer is no. But the converse of that is how much am I going to lose if I don't have one? And that's a term that I like to use called the return on seatbelt investment, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. You're not going to make, you're not going to make incremental revenue, but you're certainly going to, uh, narrow the amount of time that it takes to recover if you don't have one. And that is often, you know, most people think of revenue, but if you're in a, an area where life safety is important, it could mean lives. And we've yeah. heard that. We heard that at TravelNet, right? And, mm-hmm. You know, in the different sessions, it could mean lives. It means that somebody gets an ambulance sooner rather than later. It means that somebody's, you know, insulin dosage is available for healthcare providers. So the impact is more than revenue. It can be, you know, life-saving. And another thing that I heard was that a certain uh, tribe lost a a lot of their language that had been recorded. Yes, I heard that. Yes, and and exactly. In a time when we have fewer and fewer fluent speakers Mm -hmm. of our native language, that is the crown jewels of yeah. many tribes. Mm-hmm. And so if people say that, you know, preservation of language is important, our elders are important, healthcare is important, education is important. Well, if those things are important, get your incident response plan in place, call an expert, find the money, get it done. 
Renita, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and um, providing all this information. It's such a great conversation and I appreciate your time and helping us lead through that. You're welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me on today on this podcast. I do consider myself to be uh, an evangelist of sorts as it relates to this topic. So thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I could see your pom-poms, even though we're not on video right now. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. That, That I did my job. Yes, you did. Oh, thank you. Have a good one. Thank you, Michelle. For more information on today's podcast, just click on the show notes. If you have a story to share or a topic you'd like to see us cover, reach out to our team on LinkedIn or via email at contactus at tribalhub.com. See you soon.